I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We are back to college this hour with the late lunatic, ever the scariest iconoclast on campus, the now detoxified German philosopher with a bird's nest mustache, Friedrich Nietzsche. Among thinkers, he was an incomparable phrase maker who declared the death of God, the eternal return, and the will to power. The job in life, he thought, was to add style to one's character, and he did it. The trick was to say in 10 sentences what everyone else says in a book, what everyone else does not say in a book, and he mastered that too. We feel several impulses here. One, to hear what draws college students to philosophy in the anxious atmosphere of 2019. Two, we wanted to hike through the Alps with, with Nietzsche, alongside John Cagg, the American philosopher, who took us through our own Emerson and Thoreau trails not so long ago. And three, we were drawn by the fresh attention to Nietzsche himself, who used to seem too cool for school, too funny, too reckless, too outrageous for polite company. He can sound now self-helpy, almost therapeutic. Here's a first taste of our dip into John Cagg's class in Existence and Anxiety at UMass Lowell last week. I'm interested in talking about Nietzsche, but I also am interested in a very basic question about what draws you to philosophy. For me, it's finding meaning in my life again. I kind of succumb to a relationship. We suffer, and that suffering brings us together. There's a reason for that suffering in our commune. And I have helped many people through similar pain that I've gotten through myself. For a 19-year-old, I can understand things that like a lot of people can't understand because of all the things I've been through. So I think you just have to learn the beauty in that. What, what happens if I'm stubborn and don't accept the suffering? I'm on the side of Nietzsche if I had to, you know, if I had to pick a team. So it's like saying, like, if you don't face your suffering and your anxiety, you're not going to live an authentic life. You're not even living your own true life. John Cagg, welcome to Open Source in the studio. In the three or four years I've known you, John, you've come to embody the word philosophy as thinking to live by, thinking on your feet, thinking as you walk, as you talk. It was a kick to see you expound all of that at UMass Lowell last week. Uh, what is the theory of this sort of philosophical instruction? Thanks for having me, Chris. Pleasure. Philosophy is not the most arcane of disciplines. It's the most practical of disciplines. Nietzsche takes after the ancients in his imperative to know thyself. Hmm. This is the same as Socrates in the Apology when he says that the point of life is to give a good account of why the time that we have is not a complete waste of time. And I think for Nietzsche, he gets to it right away. He says, in order to know thyself, you have to ask what he calls forbidden questions. He follows mm. Ovid. He says, we must have the courage for the forbidden. He suggests that the questions that scare us the most are, in fact, mm. the ones that deserve our immediate attention. And I think students today really want to get to that. They want to say, who am I? What lies beneath the mask of everyday life? What drives me? Um, but that's oftentimes 
not the easiest question to ask. Nietzsche also sort of takes us to how we should address the answers to those questions. Oftentimes, the, que- the answers that we give are not always the most full or acceptable ones. And for Nietzsche, he suggests that we have to understand, understand those answers as deeply human, as fallible, mm-hmm. as ones that we have to own up to with acceptance and humility, understanding, but to also understand that they are provisional, that they're just the starting point, that we can go further. Hmm. You remind me that, that my older brother majored in philosophy in a Catholic university and a great one, but it was entirely systematic and orthodox. You and I swear by William James's pragmatism, ideas to be judged by their results, not by their place in a formal system. But in the European tradition, there's great writing in those pragmatists, the transcendentalists, but not quite philosophy. How bridge that gap? So 19th century philosophy is based... Um, in the idea, Nietzsche says that God is dead, but what he means is Mm. that the conventional structures of life, our church, our politics, our family, all of these ways that we might have structured life in the past, in the 17th and 18th centuries, don't necessarily hold the same sway that they hold today. And Nietzsche and Emerson and Thoreau are all asking us, to face the challenge of structuring our lives beyond these conventions. So you're correct that it's not systematic, and it's not systematic for a point. It's because we've reached the point that we no longer can rely on systematic truths. It's funny, as you say that, I'm just realizing almost exactly this time, James Joyce, 1900, was basically saying exactly the same things in different language. Farewell to Father... Farewell to Ireland, farewell to church, farewell to empire, starting something new. Nietzsche's way of saying it was God is dead. That's right. I mean, when when Nietzsche was eight, Thoreau is writing walking. And he says, to take a walk, hmm. to take a philosophical walk, one must be willing to leave mother and father and sister and brother to leave everything behind. Yes. And I think that Nietzsche, in his quest for philosophical insight around Sils Maria, Switzerland, was encouraging us to, well, take a Thoreauvian walk. And I mean, this is in part why uh, Nietzsche read Emerson so carefully. And you did the walk, and we're going to get to it, but I'm also just thinking, um, introduce this new Nietzsche. As you speak, I'm thinking so much of Nietzsche that I've known until now has been the style, the incredible aphoristic bite. Uh, and density, and and it's like a punch in the nose. Um, uh, where where has this guy been all along? Where where has the new Nietzsche, the more the more um, approachable, less toxic Nietzsche, come from? Yeah. So Nietzsche gives us a thought experiment to think through. He calls it the eternal return. He says, "Think about a demon that comes to you in your loneliest of loneliness and says." that this moment has to be lived over exactly the same way again. And would this thought crush you or would it elevate your soul, given that you have to relive this not once, not twice, but an infinite number of times? We're going to hear you do that with your students, and it's powerful. But... And, and the, the, the way that we usually answer this is through the will to power, this bitingness. But mm. Nietzsche actually is encouraging us also to embrace the amor fati, 
what he calls the love of fate, um, which is to embrace not only the most glorious moments of life, but also the most despicable. And I think that this is sort of a new Nietzsche that I think that we could see. You've been to, along his trail, so to speak, in the Alps twice, once as a 19-year-old, again with your wife and daughter, what, uh, a, a year ago. You're approaching 40. Um, what did those adventures, being walking a mile in his shoes, teach you? I mean, I grew up in a very strict Lutheran church, much like Nietzsche's. You did amazing. And um, when he said, God is dead, that uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, these were liberating words for mm-hmm. when, I, when I was 19. But I think that they are especially valuable to those of us who have crested middle age or who are about to crest middle, middle age. Because the ubermensch, this overman that everyone mm-hmm. aspires to when they read Nietzsche, is actually sort of natural to a 19-year-old, but it's something that a 40-year-old might remember very well, that there are possibilities that we forego in adult mm-hmm. life, that we might return to, that in fact it is simply possibility that Nietzsche is inviting us to encounter. And I think that that is actually what we're both Emerson, Nietzsche, and Thoreau are allowing us to see as we grow older. When, when we get older, we sort of give ourselves over to the habits mm. of our lives. <laughs> and Nietzsche is saying, we don't have to. This whole, you know, the reading I've done in the last year or so just really confirms that I've been running away from Nietzsche all my life in a certain way. And, and it dawns on me that in college, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, there are two kinds of self-starting intellectuals or free thinkers that you run into, and you see, you can spot them a mile away. One is carrying Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged, and the and there they end up business guys or burnt-out right-wingers or something. But the others are they're reading Nietzsche, and they're witty, they're artistic, they're they're natural-born speculators, philosophers, experimenters, and it's clear to me now that I I I, I should have been reading Nietzsche all along. What, what, what is that difference or well, that commonality between, you know, the, the Randians and the Nietzscheans? Well, I will say this because I was one of the people who carried around Nietzsche. Nietzsche gets right to the nut of it. He says, we are dying. We are fallible. We mm. are finite. And the only way that we can justify existence, human existence or otherwise, is mm. through what he calls aesthetic experience which is to say artistic experience. Can we make our Mm. life a work of art? That is Nietzsche's challenge to us. And I think that that's a challenge that resonates with a lot of students. And then in middle age, maybe it should resonate with us even more. Before we get to the students, John, after the break, draw the line, if there is one, between philosophy, a la Nietzsche, and you, and self-help, and another line to therapy. Mm. So with Nietzsche, there's never a moment of self-satisfaction. That's the big difference, I think. Mm. So in self-help, we oftentimes think that we get to a certain place and then we should be happy. Nietzsche says maybe the point of life is simply the process of becoming. Mm. And that's, I think, a fairly significant difference. I also think that Nietzsche thinks... Um, that great sickness, we should be grateful to that. We shouldn't escape it. We Mm. shouldn't escape great fear. 
Um, it's in dwelling or orienting ourselves to the fear that life is lived. Fascinating. Another little discovery on the way that's new for me is A, he was incredibly musical, and B, for a guy who, who ended his life insane, um, uh, he was very, very funny. Coming up, before there was Nietzsche in America, there was an American streak inside Nietzsche. This is Open Source. 23 students, late teens well into their 20s, showed up in John Cagg's UMass Lowell classroom last week, raring to give and take on existence, anxiety, and Nietzsche. By this point in mid-semester, they've heard a lot about one another's lives, relationships, parents, habits, jobs, and anxieties, and they've all read carefully in John Cagg's well-reviewed new book called Hiking with Nietzsche on Becoming who you are. A lot of those students are back for their second or third course with Professor Kag. This is a class called Existence and Anxiety. It's a class on existentialism. And Friedrich Nietzsche is a central figure. One of the issues that we talked about last time is that Nietzsche, through the 1880s, was asking us to face the forbidden. In the Antichrist, he says, one must have courage born of strength for the forbidden. One must have courage for forbidden questions. I want to ask, what are your forbidden questions? Maybe you want to first say what Nietzsche's were, and then you might want to ask yourself what yours are. So what are forbidden questions? Not generally, but specifically. Give me examples. Michael. Why continue living? Why continue living? Like, why bother? Is that a forbidden question? In our culture, the answer is definitely. Is that a frightening question? In the myth of Sisyphus, the first sentence, Camus says, there is but one serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. We don't think about suicide in our culture. Why not? Austin. I think we do think about suicide in our culture, just not out loud. Everybody goes through moments where there are times when they are going to think about it because you have to. You think about, like, dying and you shudder because you think that that can't happen. But we just don't talk about it out loud because it's too hard. And why would we do that? It doesn't seem to be of purpose. It doesn't seem healthy. It doesn't seem good. When William James in 1895 asked the question, is life worth living? That's a question that oftentimes we ask in our darkest moments, correct? The times when something happens to us that turns our world completely upside down. The question in philosophy is one where you ask, can I ask this question before it is too late? Before I come to the darkest moments of my life? Can you do it? Can you make philosophy spring training for the rest of your life? Do you get this? That in, in part, these hard questions, the questions that Nietzsche asked, or the questions that Michael has asked, he says, is my life worth living? Wouldn't you like an answer to that before you go out into the oblivion, Michael? That would be helpful. I think so, too. And so did Nietzsche. 
And so did William James. So did all of the philosophers that I teach. So give me another forbidden question that, you know, in your heart of hearts, in your quiet moments, deep down inside, what sort of questions? Well, I mean, I don't know if this is true now, but it definitely was when I was younger, because I, I used to get a lot of crap for saying this, but um, what's the point of believing in God? Yeah, God is dead, Nietzsche says. We have killed him, you and I. That was a forbidden question in the 1880s. It still is. God is dead. In other words, the conventions of our normal everyday life don't necessarily have to have the same type of meaning as they once did. The structure, the norms, the laws, God, your family, country, those things don't have the same grip on us as they did in the 1700s. That's Nietzsche's point. That's the point still today. So, what are we to do in the face of the death of God? What do we put in its place that we talked about last class? Austin. Uh, the will to power. What is or, the will to power? What is the will to power? Oh, really? really Go ahead. Kick me here. Um, so okay. the will to power is, is that everything um, in your life is done out of will and that there's no way around that. There's no, no, no reason. It's, it's absurd to think that everything you do is just for the sake of desire and, and, and will just to keep moving forward. And that is what I think he says in... Um, in the will to power. Doesn't he say that that's what life is? Is Life is the will to power. So one question that I would ask is, when do you experience the will to power? Nietzsche actually doesn't talk about the will to power that much in his corpus, okay? Only four times. But it actually, when you think about Nietzsche, that's all we think about. We think about him as the philosopher of the hammer. In other words, what human beings find most meaningful is exercising this will. What Kevin from last class said, well, when I hit somebody into the boards at hockey, I'm exercising my will to power, and it makes me feel good. Right? So ask yourself, when do you exercise the will to power? Those moments when you're most creative or you find life most meaningful, when you're exercising your volition. When do you do that? Michael. For me, it's probably when I'm home playing with my daughter. Yeah. Give me something else. When I'm taking care of my niece because I want to be a part of her life and that kind of makes me feel good being a part of her life as she grows up. When else? I mean, just helping out anyone in general. I tend to feel that I have a sense of purpose doing that, whether it be someone comes to me crying and they, they need help or if, if they just want to hang out and talk to me, that kind of gives me a sense of purpose, and I feel like a star in, in that sense, you know. God, you guys are such enlightened beings. <laughs> I would venture to say, however, is that most of our lives at the age of 19 consist in exercising the will to power in not such enlightened ways. I mean, give me some sort of standard ways in which you exercise your will to power that doesn't have to do necessarily with helping others. Because Nietzsche at certain points says that the will to power has nothing to do with that. So if you asked me a couple years ago, and you probably did when I took your intro course, my answer was likely going to be something about 
when I did well in school or when I did something impressive with my work. Yeah. Right? That's it. Who else? Come on, describe it. Connor. I like to play video games, and I'm playing God of War, and I've mastered how to beat the toughest boss in the game. And sometimes I'll, if I just want to feel good, I'll reload that spot and then try to beat it without being hit once. And I don't know, I just feel on top of the world when I do that. It's kind of simple, kind of stupid, but yeah, I I like it. (laughs) It's not simple. It's not stupid. You feel like you are the master of the universe, correct? And just for our listeners, Connor is a seven-foot-tall basketball player, and he has this placard in Songus Arena that's bigger than he is of him, which is just, that's typical will to power, right? It's like, yes, I got that poster made of me. I am the best. Like, this is, I mean, surely to God you must have thought that you were just divine when that happened. I mean, it felt good. Of course it felt good. Nietzsche knows it feels good. Nietzsche says, go ahead, feel it. We are animals, you and I. We are not just minds. These instinctual feelings of power, more power, the will to power. This is what life is or is about. Now, what are some of the problems with the will to power? Oh, Connor, you have an answer to that. So it's kind of funny when you bring up that cardboard cutout because as a person, I try to be humble with everything in my life. So when they made that, I felt good and like, wow, they're recognizing my height and whatever. And I felt kind of famous. But then at times I'm like, well, that's a little too much. I, I don't know. I kind of feel weird about it. And then like people come up to me asking for autographs and like, I obviously feel fantastic but I, I don't want to brag about it and right. so there, there's kind of this balance of how much of the will to power is too much and too selfish and then but you if you don't take that in then you can't really feel that pleasure and that unique feeling this is what Nietzsche is concerned about okay I mean in part Nietzsche knows that the feelings of humility the feeling of oh I shouldn't be as powerful as I am is one of the dispositions of our society. We're not supposed to exercise our will to power, right? We're supposed to be meek. The meek shall inherit the earth. The little sheep shall inherit the earth. Like, this is Christian slave morality, according to Nietzsche. Nietzsche thinks, you know what? You should be able to exercise your will to power. You should. Right? And in fact, you should be able to stand up and say openly, I am good at this. This is what gives my life meaning. There are, however, detractors or shortcomings, limits to the will to power. What are they? Asia. So essentially, once you've sort of achieved or kind of like maximized your will to power there's kind of a sense of despair because you kind of can look at it and be like okay I've achieved this but what now and then you sort of realize that there are kind of almost infinite possibilities there are so many things you could achieve more than you could in your entire lifetime so I guess there's kind of a feeling of despair in a sense Tyler yeah, piggybacking off of what Asia said once you achieve you know greatness in something you look around you and you might feel very lonely because you're alone on the top of a mountain 
and you, you might see other people on top of their mountains, but you know, ultimately you're alone. Good. Now Nietzsche thinks that life does not consist exclusively in the will to power, or rather, the ways that we use the will to power are oftentimes problematic. Now I'm going to go through a thought experiment with you. It's called the eternal return or the eternal reoccurrence. I'm going to read the passage from the eternal return. So this is in 1884. Nietzsche is in Sils Maria, Switzerland, the place where hiking with Nietzsche occurs. And he's walking along Silva Plana, this sublimely beautiful lake. And he has this thought. He has a thought experiment that he means to sort of guide or underpin our lives. And he says, what if some day or night a demon were to steal into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life, as you live and have lived it, you will now have to live it once again and innumerable times again, and there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unspeakably small or great in your life must return to you. All in the same succession and sequence, even this spider and this moonlight between the trees and even this moment and myself. What is Nietzsche saying there? Michael. Pretty much he's saying if at the end of your life a demon were to ask you, would you be willing to do that all over again the same exact way, would you be okay with that? And not just once but or forever. twice, but innumerable times again. And that question isn't just at the end of your life, but in every action that you take in every psychic disposition that you have, in every moment, would you be able to, like Yates says, live it all again? Katie, you're like, no way. Why not? I mean, I feel like we all go through like rough patches or like make mistakes that none of us would really want to relive because they were just like times that we look back on and just want to forget about. So to have to relive that would just be really painful. I see, rather than looking at what Nietzsche said in kind of a negative light, I see it as a more of a motivation, because if you know that you have to relive everything, you might as well live your life to the fullest and make the most of every opportunity, because if you're going to live it again and you're going to live those positive aspects, you might as well try to maximize that pleasure. I know that's kind of an Epicurean approach to it, and that... In the long run, those pleasures won't really matter, but why live through the despair constantly? Going off that, it might not just be about, like, avoiding the despair, but living with it and finding, like, the good in it, like, going through the suffering and finding meaning in that suffering. But then Nietzsche says the following. He says, Oftentimes we exercise our will to power in ways that hurt ourselves or hurt others. And can you, can you face those moments, not once, not twice, not a dozen times, but an infinite number of times? 
what sort of strength must we have in order to embrace the eternal return in times of great sorrow or betrayal or great sickness? Was that something like Nietzsche talks about um, amor fati, like the love of fate? You get to like not not just like accept the bad parts of your life, but like get to love the bad parts of your life, like like embrace them totally. But even not just the good parts, anything bad that happens, you have to embrace that completely. That's part of your life. That is the amor fati. Nietzsche says the love of fate is the ability to love, love, not just accept, but love. Those moments that I find most heinous, most embarrassing, most despicable. Those things that I would want to escape. And he says, not only do you have to sit with it, but you must find a way to love it. How is that possible? This is the key, I think, to adult life. Adult life is not spent enjoying moments of the will to power. Adult life is boring and painful and sick. How do you turn that into something beautiful and worthy of love? That is the question I want to ask you, and I really, really don't know the answer, but I am really, really interested in your responses. How do you do it? Yeah, so I think, like, much in the same way that we don't know why we love other people, I think if we can find that same, like, nebulous, irrational love for ourselves, then we can learn to love our experience because it's ours. And, like, we have that. That's something that we know for sure. Like, I know that um, I played soccer in seventh grade. I've had relationships with people, and those are mine. Those Um, are mine. Right. Think about this. I think this is getting closer to what Nietzsche means. The love of fate is to say that this too is mine. This misery is mine. Nietzsche wants us to hang in. To sit in it. This is from Hiking with Nietzsche. Days before his collapse, Nietzsche wrote, I have often asked myself whether I am not more heavily obligated to the hardest years of my life than to any others. By the end, he seems to suggest it is precisely these years that gave him the chance to explore what he took to be life's driving imperative. It's deceptively simple. Become who you are. He says, I must be grateful to the sickest years of my life, for they have given me my philosophy. Coming up. Nietzsche's Other Americans links, since Emerson, to the likes of Cornel West, Harold Bloom, Joni Mitchell, Hugh Hefner, Jordan Peterson. This is Open Source. We're on a philosophical hike with the quotable always provocative Friedrich Nietzsche this hour. Nobody's quite said it yet that the German aphorist was as American as apple pie, but our guest Jennifer Ratner-Rosenhagen in Madison, Wisconsin, in a wonderful book called American Nietzsche, 
nails the point that Ralph Waldo Emerson, our own sage of Concord, was the primary influence on Nietzsche's substance and style. Harold Bloom says Nietzsche became Emerson's most penetrating reader, and the transatlantic link never faded. How do we explain that, Jennifer Ratner, Rosenhagen? And thank you so much for being there. I love the book, American Nietzsche. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Um, how do we explain Nietzsche's love of Emerson? Well, this giant of German philosophy in the modern time uh, was yeah. all came out of Harvard and Concord and, you know, that wonderful stiff out there. <laughs> but, well, this is, this is um, um, uh, what's so astonishing to me is that even when you mount all of the evidence of how much Emerson meant to Nietzsche and how, what an influence he was, um, many people just don't want to hear it. You know, uh, they don't want to, they don't want our good natured, you know, furry, purry kitten, uh, Walfalter Emerson good, wholesome, safer democracy. They don't like the idea that this, that his thought could have been an initiating tick for what we get on the other side of the Atlantic, which some see as, uh, you know, a forerunner of Nazism. Um, we, we, we know Emerson was an individualist, self-reliance and all that. Did we know that the roots of the overman, the Superman came out of Emerson? I think, um, well, let's put it this way. Already um, in 1914, um, when, when Nietzsche is just becoming popular in the United States, there's a very well-known commentator, and he says, we have our Emerson. Why are people doting on Nietzsche? <laughs> um, so, and, and so this is interesting because he did not know that Nietzsche was a reader of Emerson, but he could read Nietzsche and say, wow, something here... <laughs> Hmm. It's sounding a little familiar. Um, my, our American thoughts are coming back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Yeah. Um, and so what, what I've seen is that over the course of the 20th century, well before readers caught on to the fact that Nietzsche read Emerson his entire, uh, it started at age 16 and read him in sometimes year after year. Hmm. Um, only There were only some stretches of time where he didn't read him for the, for the, the entire scope of his sane life. So even even people who weren't aware of that, they could read Nietzsche and they can hear, you know, in underneath his eternal becoming, something like Emerson's soul becomes. They could hear in um, em Nietzsche's emphasis on the plasticity of the self, um, something of Emerson's emphasis that life only avails not the having lived. Mm. Yeah? People could hear... In Emerson, uh, sorry, here in Nietzsche, who called for a gay science, right, a playful, imaginative science, something like Emerson, the, the a playful philosopher, someone who called himself at one point the professor of the joyous science. Hmm. So um, this is um, uh, now, of course, Nietzsche does different things with Emerson. Uh, Emerson's ideas, and he becomes himself. He becomes who he is. Uh, he's his own writer. Um, so, and if he were just copying Emerson whole cloth, he'd be a lot less interesting than he is. But I think what's so interesting is, well, first, that Emerson was the first philosopher that Nietzsche encountered. 
Um, he read him as a 16 year old prep school student. He read him at a moment that he was having a crisis in his own Christianity, a crisis of faith. And he read Emerson and Emerson, um, emboldened him to step out into that uncertainty, step out into his instincts, um, and, and to follow that out. And Nietzsche, um, um, you know, Emerson becomes just very important for Nietzsche as he's figuring out his own philosophy. Tell me if I'm getting it. Um, Nietzsche comes to think of himself as a rebel against what felt like a a 500-year weight of German theology, formal philosophy, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. embodied, I suppose, in Immanuel Kant. There is no such tradition in America. Emerson is the first of his kind, but he's a like so many other Americans, he is gloriously improvisational. And mm-hmm. and Nietzsche learns that art from him. Is that roughly it? That's um, that's very well put. So um, I should add that Emerson suffered a bit um, for, as he put it, having no history at his back, you know, for the mm. idea that Americans could be the, the Adam, you know, the first man of history, um, that the with the Revolutionary War, we were starting, the world can begin again, begin anew, as, um, as um, we learn in common sense. But for Emerson, that was also quite terrifying. Um, well, what would that mean? You know, what would that mean for us um, to, to not only break free from uh, England, but also intellectually to become our own? Um, and this was something that Emerson struggled with because he himself was an avid reader of European thought. You know, he was an avid reader of European philosophy, and he knew it was hugely influential on him. So, on the one time, he drew drew heavily from from your from European thought, but at the same time, wanted to start anew. And I think what is magical about Emerson's writing is just how effective he is, right, at breaking or or at least trying to break the chains to the past, to no longer. Um, feast from the remains of some other culture's harvest. Um, Jennifer, there are so many other variations since Emerson. I learned from you that Hugh Hefner, the late Hugh Hefner, wrote in the first issue of Playboy, December 1953, that the dream date in the Playboy mind included, in this order, mood music with a female acquaintance for a quiet discussion of Picasso, Nietzsche, jazz, and of course, sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Have you, you? You should try it. <laughs> <laughs> you think I'd I like it? Recommend it in that order. <laughs> um, the order is, of course, significant. Um, so many others. Alan Bloom of the famous, uh, who who was Saul Bellows Ravelstein in in the novel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said in his Closing of the Mind, uh, and he wrote it with some disgust, he said, Nietzsche is us. What did mm-hmm. he mean? That is, um, and I think you're right that he said it with some disgust. Um, so Alan Bloom um, uh, you know, writes this, this blockbuster of a book, Closing of the American Mind, in the late 1980s where he blames what he calls, so the book is really about 
it's a it's a lament about what's going on on college campuses. Um, it's a lament about multiculturalism. Um, it's a lament that we're no longer longer teaching students to you know encounter great minds. And what what the, the argument is really not that the American mind is too closed, but rather it's too open. It's too radically indiscriminate that we're teaching kids on college campuses not how you know not how to judge good and bad. Um, and he argues that it's because it's the quote Nietzscheanization of the university. Meaning and he what does though? This, he, he and well, he's he, he's not a bad genealogist here. He looks at how Nietzsche becomes popular in American universities, and he says that works if you're dealing with erudite professors and students who have good training. So your brother, for example, from a, a Catholic high school might have been able to handle it. Hmm. Uh, but what, what he was worried about was that students really don't have the background to handle Nietzsche. So all they have is this self-aggrandizing, you know, chest thumping um, you know, um, figure with so much bravado, but there's no searching intellect yeah, there's no, there's nothing penetrating in that thought. I want to ask John Kag. Your students seem to have the background to grapple with Nietzsche, no? Yes, I think so. And I, I mean, Bloom is also concerned about the, the sort of obsession with the libido, that we see in our culture, the Mick Jagger moment. And mm. uh, Bloom, like Pinker, for example, um, Stephen Pinker, thinks that Nietzsche gives rise to that moment, the the moment where the libido is honored. Um, to the point of the degradation of all other forms of human enlightenment. And I think what my students have proven to me is that they can actually temper the Apollonian, the ordered, the rational, with the Dionysian, mm. the chaotic. And that's Nietzsche's intent. It's not supposed to go one way or the other. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be a balance. Jennifer, you name a lot of others, the painter Mark Rothko, the singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell, who have their Nietzschean... Loyalties. Why? And who else? Uh, where do I begin? Um, so, I mean, I should should mention to the audience that I'm an American historian. I focus on American intellectual history, so the history of American ideas. Um, but what I uh, what I came to discover was that wherever <laughs> not wherever you found an interesting American writer, philosopher, literary scholar social scientist. Oftentimes Nietzsche was somewhere in their own intellectual development. And so what what I did and what turned into the book um, that you were referring to, American Nietzsche, was to sort of trace out what is this history of Americans encountering Nietzsche? So there's the prehistory of Nietzsche encountering Emerson, but then Nietzsche's texts come back over to the United States in the late 19th century. And from the late 19th to through century up until our day, I mean, you want big names, you've got them. H.L. Mencken writes the first monograph, the first full-length book on Friedrich Nietzsche in 1908. H.L. Mencken was nobody. I mean, he was a smart guy. He was a funny pro stylist. But he came to his ideas, and he came really to, to his, his writing style through by way of Nietzsche. Margaret Sanger discovered mm. in Nietzsche not just the Ubermensch, but the Uber, Uberfrau. Um, Emma Goldman looked to Nietzsche as a prophet of pretty much everything that was great, but ironically, um, or or not ironically, but something that that that's often missed is she used Nietzsche as a crit, crit, a critique of nationalism. 
Hmm. Um, so she talked about nationalism as a kind of stupid tribal chauvinism, and she drew heavily on Nietzsche to make these kinds of arguments. Um, Cam- I mean, Camille Paglia, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, uh, reintroduced the Apollonian, the Dionysian, and the voice of Nietzsche in a big way. Um, Camille Potter, well, do you remember? Of course I do. Um, oh my gosh, I sort of, I miss her. Um, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Um, well, she had to share space with a postmodern Nietzsche also at the time. Um, so she was doing something very different with Nietzsche. But this was also at the time that a, a, you know, the, a postmodern use of Nietzsche. So Nietzsche by way of Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida um, uh, and so, and that's when Nietzsche becomes really the rage uh, in the academy. And this is precisely what Bloom um, is reacting against. Now, I should add, and I'm sure John can agree with this, um, though it sounds like Bloom does not like Nietzsche, right? That he's disparaging Nietzsche. He's actually not. He thinks Nietzsche is a genius. Hmm. He thinks Nietzsche has an absolutely beautiful mind. But he thinks that only the elect few, like himself, can understand Nietzsche and therefore handle, you know, the power of that dynamite. Um, so yeah. I just wanted to, 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 to make that note to, to, um, to, to your listeners that it's a very strange move that he does, right? It's, he, he cares so much about Nietzsche that he has to make this, you know, odd move to try to get him out of the hands and out of the minds of the masses. Jennifer, I want your take on why now? Why 2019? Why are John Cagg's college kids and lots of others lapping up Nietzsche in this, dare I say, Trumpian uh, distress of our culture? Well, I um, partly, I I mean, I think you're hearing it in John's students. Um, Nietzsche is a personalist philosopher. He has a way of just speaking to his reader very directly. Um, so he has a, a, a very powerful way of making his readers feel as if he's writing for them personally. And this is, in fact, something that that people have said over and over and over again over the last century. And so one of it is just the magic of his prose and the force of his ideas. But also, I think now... Um, you know, when, when I think about my students, I think of them living in an America. I mean, I don't even we, we can't even call it this, the, the second Gilded Age, because I think the first one was actually better than, than the situation we find ourselves in our political economy now. Hmm. But that is to say, I worry um, that a lot of my students are downwardly mobile, that what their parents were able to do for them, they're not going to be able to graduate and do the same, um, given you know, the wealth distribution in our country, et cetera, et cetera. But more importantly, and this is something that most of my students are keenly aware of, is that they're in a broken planet. Um, You know, the word Anthropocene (laughs) doesn't come trippingly to my tongue, but it does to theirs because they're keenly aware that their planet is heating up and that 200 species are dying a day and they're wondering, you know, how it was that their parents and their parents' parents gave them, you know, left them this world that is, you know, not, the, the diagnosis is not, not good. And so where does The Nietzsche diagnosis or the Dionysus? 
<laughs> maybe, <laughs> well, maybe the diagnosis of the future of the planet is not good. And they're young enough that they're going to be the ones stuck with it. So what does it mean to read Nietzsche and the Anthropocene? Um, and that's what I think um, I'm, I'm going to be interested if John felt that with his students. But that's something I see with my students. And here's where the eternal recurrence comes in, which is what Nietzsche tells them is, look, folks, none of this happened by nature or necessity. Hmm. None of this is predetermined. You know, none of this um, is authorized by a god. It's a product of human folly. It's a product of contingency. It's a product of people's will to power. But if you're going to live your life over and over again, what is it you, you're going to do? You know, to say, as the Germans would say, jawohl, which is, I go for it. I embrace it. Um, and so I actually think it, reading Nietzsche is not slipping into nihilism or despair, that they've, they've in some ways inherited a kind of crummy um, politics and a crummy um, economics for some, not for all, and for a crummy planet for all, although, of course, the world's poor are going to feel it the John, most. We've got to give John Kegg 30 seconds for his version. So I agree with Jennifer. When Friedrich Nietzsche wrote Beyond Good and Evil, he said, this will be re read in the year 2000, or we could say 2019. He is giving us a way of thinking about facing apocalypse. I think that's right, both personal ends but also civilizational ends. And what should we do in the face of that disaster or in the face of that imminent oblivion? Is there an answer? What should we do? We should read Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> Thank you, John Kagg. Thank you for sharing your students, too, at UMass Lowell with us last week. Thank you, Jennifer Ratner-Rosenhagen. Jennifer's new book is The Ideas That Made America, A Brief History. We cannot wait to talk with you about it. Our show was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, and our engineer George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our philosopher queen. I'm just the pragmatist, Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source.